Uh, as we get started, I want to read to you a few verses from Paul's letter to Timothy, the second one, to kind of uh, set the stage for what we're going to talk about today. Here's what Paul says to, uh, to Timothy. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Our Father, as we come this morning to ponder what is occurring in our midst, I pray as I have continued to pray for months now and many of us have prayed, Lord, protect this body, protect Front Range Alliance Church, indeed protect your church throughout our land, throughout the world from men such as these. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear your voice as well as the voice of the enemy. And may we stand firm for the right things and the good things and not be led astray by what we see around us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're continuing our series that we've called Understanding the Times. And we're continuing to look at what's going on out there and making sure that we as Christians don't follow suit. Today, we're talking about the sexual perversion agenda. So as, uh, as I was studying this week when I, well, <laughs> I won't get into what else I was doing as I was sick, but as I was uh, pondering this, this sermon, the... Uh, the circumstances of our culture provided a very unhappy illustration for our topic today. My guess is if I asked people to raise their hands in this room right now, there's a whole lot of people here who have a subscription to Netflix. But maybe, did I hear not anymore? Maybe fewer of you have a subscription than you did a week ago. If you haven't seen what's going on, there is a new movie released by Netflix called Cuties. And it is apparently anything but cute. It involves uh, several 10 and 11 year old girls who are portrayed doing things that I have read someone say, if you had video on your computer of girls doing these things and the officials showed up to investigate your computer for child pornography, you would be charged guilty. And yet they've released this as a mainstream film on Netflix. And so there's a, a huge movement of people who are canceling subscriptions to Netflix. Their stock prices went down over the week, which I think is wonderful. And it's just a, a statement, a comment on what's going on in our culture. When you think about, they uh, apparently auditioned something like 650 girls to try out for these parts. You had the writers and the directors and the makers and the Netflix officials who had to approve all of this. And it's just, it's just wicked, it's evil. But of course, there are people on the other side who are defending the movie and defending the message that it's trying to portray, and they have certain things to say about those who would be critical. And one in particular caught my attention. It was this film critic who said, Cuties, Netflix review, a provocative powder keg for an age terrified of child sexuality. 
So his accusation is our age, our culture is afraid to acknowledge, to, to in any way embrace child sexuality. Now that shouldn't surprise any of us that they would use that terminology. It sounds a lot like another term that has been hurled at us for decades, in several terms actually, the phobias, right? Phobia is the Greek word for fear. It comes right over to English. If you have a phobia, you're afraid of something. Well, if you resist men being with men or women being with women, you are called a homophobe. You're homophobic. You are afraid of this. If you resist a man becoming a woman or a woman becoming a man, you are transphobic. And that makes us wonder if the next word that's going to be introduced to our culture is something like pedophobic. Are you afraid of embracing the fact that children can be sexual beings? It's, it's awful, right? It's, it's, it's perverse. And I choose that word intentionally. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, the question is why? Why would somebody push this? Why would anybody? We, uh, we look at this and think, what on earth? Why would somebody want to see children in any way sexualized? Well, it's for the same reason they wanted to see same-sex relationships brought to popularity in the culture and transgender folks and pornography and normalizing adultery, taking the stigma away from adultery and fornication way back to the, the 60s and the sexual revolution. It, it's, at one level, it is just the wickedness of mankind. It is the depravity of mankind. We think of Romans chapter one, where Paul describes there in sobering terms that when a culture rejects God, and God hands people over to their inherent wickedness and depravity, it always leads to sexual debauchery. And this is inherent in, in us as human beings. If God removes his restraints, this is where we go. So from one perspective, it's not shocking at all that our culture would go this way. But it's not an accident that the timing of all of this has progressed steadily from the 1960s to where we are today. This is not just general depravity coming out. This is a concentrated Marxist pursuit. Cultural Marxism, which is what we've been talking about this whole series, is very intentional in seeking to normalize perversions. Perversion is their word, not my word. Uh, the, the Frankfurt School, if you remember we talked about them, the group in the 40s and 50s and 60s that eventually found their way to Columbia University in New York and other places in America. They use this word perversions. Perver a, a perversion is something that, that veers away from the norm. And they are intentional about taking all of the sexual desires that are contrary to the norm and making them normal so that they're not offensive to anybody. And this has been an ongoing agenda. If you recall a few weeks ago when we looked at Black Lives Matter and, and many of you came to me afterwards that I had no idea what they really stood for. We hear the slogan, Black Lives Matter, and we think, who would disagree with that? And then you read what they're really after and it's things like this. We affirm the, black li the bl lives of black queer and trans folks. We make space for transgender brothers and sisters. We are self-reflexive and do the work to dismantle cisgender privilege. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family. We foster a queer affirming network. And you, you think, wait, I thought you guys were about black lives. And you, and you see, no, they have a much more devious agenda. And two of the three founders of Black Lives Matter are trained Marxists. They state that uh, without hesitation. So there's, a, there's an agenda that's been moving in America, at least for the, since the 1960s, and we're going to see how this has progressed to get us to this point. Now, before we look at the, the error, we want to look at the truth. 
And we're going to go back and broaden this out to the original creation mandates given to mankind. Think back to Genesis in the first chapter. Verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And here's the key. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and so on. Here's the first statement of purpose for mankind. Let them rule. Let them take charge. Let them be the kings over the earth. Comes back two verses later and says something very similar. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. So that's the instruction, that's the command, that's the purpose. Fill the earth with people and conquer it. Take control of it. Build civilization. Right? Then we see in chapter 2, specifically about Adam, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. That word cultivate uh, has to do with taking just the, the raw materials and making something productive, something fruitful from it. That's what you do. You have a garden. If, some of you are gardeners. If you just have a, a plot of land and you say, there's my garden, what good is that? Right? I have a garden too. I don't do anything with it. It's just this area in the backyard, but I call it a garden. No, you have, to, you have to dig in, you have to plant seeds, you have to water it, fertilize it, take care of it, right? You have, to, you have to do something. And if it doesn't ever bear any fruit, if you just have a bunch of dirt piled up and you say, I planted rose there, and you say, come look at my garden, everybody says, what? I don't see anything but a bunch of dirt. No, no, it's a garden. No, you, you, it's not a garden unless something comes of it, unless you bear fruit. That's what he's saying. That man was put in the garden to make something of it, to produce something from it. So, Adam's purpose, as delineated in Genesis 1 and 2, is rule, conquer, subdue, and make lots and lots and lots of babies. And keep making lots and lots and lots of babies. And fill the earth with conquerors, with rulers, with other people who will subdue the earth. How? How is he supposed to do this? We also find this in chapter 2. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable to him. So he says, it's not okay for Adam. First of all, he can't multiply by himself. But he also can't accomplish the work of producing and, 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 and conquering the earth. So I'm going to give him a helper. And he made Eve, his wife, for this reason a man shall leave the father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So it looks kind of like this. God established the family, father and mother and children, but it's not just a generic family. It's a patriarchal family. Now in current culture, patriarchy, that word is a really bad word. If you want to see a bunch of people get mad at you, just say you believe in the patriarchy. It's simply a word that means father rule. And it is exactly the way God designed the family to be. The father is the head of the mother. The father is the head of the children. The father and mother together rule over the children. That's the structure that God established. There is to be heterosexual marriage. And it's what we call in our day the nuclear family. This is one of the ways that mankind was given, the primary way, I'd say, to rule and subdue the earth. Now think about it. That's six or 7,000 years ago. 10, I don't know exactly when Adam and Eve were created, but somewhere in that range. Think about how much subduing and conquering and ruling has gone on in the last eight or 10,000 years. Picture Adam and Eve, just the two of them, in this huge world. And especially after they get kicked out of the garden, they're looking around at a bunch of nothing. There's a whole world to be conquered. And we forget Adam lived 930 years. Can you imagine? I mean, this is, I don't really want to live 930 years, I don't think. Uh, but, but he had a lot to do because there was nothing. And he was starting from scratch. So he learned how to raise crops. 
and he had a son named Cain, and he taught Cain how to farm. He learned how to handle the flocks, and he had a son named Abel, and he taught Abel how to handle the flocks. He had other sons and daughters, we are told. Well, Cain also had children. Abel did not get to have children because Cain took care of that for him. Uh, But Cain had children, and his descendants are described as those who first created the nomadic lifestyle. They, They were the first ones to raise their flocks and dwell in tents. So you know how this played out. Eventually, as the children grew up and had more of their own children, they multiplied and filled the earth. And you have all these flocks together, and they realize we need to expand, we need to go further out, and we we need to find new food for them. And if we had portable housing, it would be much better. And so they pursued that. Another one of his descendants was the first one to create the lyre and the flute. As a music major, I love that. One of the very first things in the Bible that man invented that he produced was the grandfather of the guitar. I love that. The pipe, the the flute, musical instruments. It's part of humanity. It's part of conquering this earth. Another son is described as the one who made implements of bronze and iron, metalworking and and metallurgy and all of that. And away we went. By the time you get to the Tower of Babel, I know the Tower of Babel was bad, as far as motive, but think about it. We had achieved, as mankind, we'd achieved a place where we thought we could build a tower to the heavens. And then as time goes on, man builds pyramids. Now, I am no engineer. I don't understand how that works, but I look at the the pyramids and I think, how in the world did they pull that off without the technology and sophistication that we have? pretty incredible. The hanging gardens of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar built, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And you fast forward to just all of the wonderful cities that exist today, some of them hundreds and hundreds of years old. In 1999, I got to go, or 1990, I got to go to uh, to London as part of a performing group, and I was struck by the fact that I'm looking at these buildings that are way older than my country. And I'm, I'm thinking, how many buildings in my country are going to last two or three hundred years? We just don't build them like we used to in so many ways. These glorious cathedrals, we sang in Westminster Cathedral. And it was heavenly. We, I was part of a, a 12-person group, and uh, I'm not bragging here. We sounded like a choir of angels. It was, it was amazing. That room, that, that building was built with acoustics in mind so that a few people could fill the giant hall with sound. It was, it was glorious. All the engineering and, and architectural design that went into creating that kind of thing. I can ask my phone right now if my garage door is closed and Siri will tell me whether or not my garage door is closed or open. My watch last week started buzzing And it said, you've been resting for 10 minutes and your heart rate is way up. Sit down. (laughs) And I thought, I feel fine. But I looked at it and I got a little nervous. And what I now understand is if I had passed out, it would have called 911 for me. And we're sitting here in forced hair and forced heating and, and the comforts. I mean, think about all the conquering and the technology. And it's wonderful. And it's what we were made to do as human beings. And it's great, isn't it? Well, not everybody thinks so. The Marxists don't think so. So we're going to talk today a little bit about a man named Herbert Macuza. He was one of the Frankfurt School guys. He's the one that stayed in America the longest, I believe. was uh, most influential in the 50s and 60s. Marcuse was a Marxist, so let me remind you of Karl Marx and what he did for us, uh, what he introduced. Marx was the guy who hated the whole idea of capitalism. He hated profit, and he was convinced that the problem with the world was this desire to grow industry, to grow productivity, and to grow profits. That was the problem. If we could eliminate that, we would reach utopia. Marcuse looked back at the history of philosophy and said Marx was basically the 
the beginning of the new era of civilization, everything else in Western civilization between Aristotle and Marx's teacher, Hegel, had been caught up in the predominant Western philosophy that went like this. We have these bodies and we have these desires and passions, but we need to curb all of those passions and let our minds rule over them. And you see that. You see that in, in Stoic philosophy. You see that where they sought very hard to suppress their natural urges and let their mind and their, their heads rule over. They looked at, at uh, Christianity as a form of Stoicism because of all the emphasis in the scripture for us to have self-control. You can't just let your passions run wild. The mind, the spirit, the, the, the non-physical part of us is what is, is important, and we have to control the physical. And anyway, that, I, I could go on, but I won't. The, the, that all came to an end as, as Marx set all that aside and said, no, there is no mind, there is no noumenal realm, there is, there's none of that, there's only the material, and our greatest problem is not our passions and desires, it's capitalism. So we need to destroy capitalism and productivity. So Marcuse bought into all of that. But there was one element that Marcuse had that Marx didn't have, that was a, the teaching of a man named Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud, one of the most influential people of all time, we're gonna be living with the monstrosities that he has introduced to Western culture for a long, long time. And he established what he called the pleasure principle versus the reality principle. So with Marx, we got the oppressor and the oppressed, the, the evil ruling class, the oppressors, everyone else is oppressed, and Sigmund Freud came along and, and developed this you know, psychoanalysis and all of that, but for our purposes, the, the pleasure principle and the reality principle. He acknowledged that we do have all these desires and passions and, and interests, but reality comes and says, if civilization is going to progress, we do need to suppress them. That's, that's just how it's worked out. You've probably studied uh, Freud enough to know the basic uh, views that he has. You're probably familiar with the Oedipus complex, one of the hearts of his, uh, his sexual view, that basically in our prepubescent period as children, the, we grow up having desires for the opposite sex parent. So little boys want to be with their moms, little girls want to be with their dad. Um, little boys in particular who want to be with their moms they love their moms, they hate their dads because he has mom and he's bigger and stronger. And he's afraid to act on his desires for mom because dad will put an end to that. And this is the kind of brilliant stuff Sigmund Freud believed and taught and promulgated and that has made its way into our culture. But through time and over generations, uh, we learn to suppress those things because it was counterproductive to reality. We have these pleasures, but reality steps in and says, if you pursue all of your desires, we're never going to get anywhere as a culture. I mean, if, if a six-year-old boy decides to pursue mom and dad doesn't like it and he wipes you out, there's no future generations to do anything. And if we act on all of our sexual desires that we have all the time, we're not going to get any work done. So the reality principle stifles the pleasure principle. Marcuse came along and endorsed a great deal of Sigmund Freud's teaching, but he said on this issue, Sigmund, you're wrong. You're wrong. We can unleash all of our pleasure. We can pursue it all. The problem, Sigmund, is you have bought into the lies of the progress of civilization as if that's a good thing. Productivity is not a good thing. We need to be done with that and take off the restraints of our desires. Here's some of the things he wrote. This is his book, Eros and Civilization. 
The high standard of living in the domain of the great corporations is restrictive in a concrete sociological sense. The goods and services that the individuals buy control their needs and petrify their faculties. Think about all that we hear, especially from the left these days, of the evils of corporations. Those greedy, power-hungry business owners. It's straight out of Mercusa. What's ironic is who are the business owners of corporations? The masses of shareholders who own the shares. But it's all restrictive in a concrete sociological sense. The goods and services control their needs and harden their faculties. People don't live because they're restricted by the corporations. In exchange for the commodities that enrich their life, the individuals sell not only their labor, but also their free time. This is what's behind all of the pop culture stuff like music and movies that talk about just working for the man. You're just working for the man. You're wasting your life working for the man. Everybody's living for the weekend. It's what we want. You have to go to work 40 hours a week, and it's wrong. You shouldn't have to go to week, work 40 hours a week. It's oppressive. You're just working for the man. We want to have all the free time, and that's what matters in life. This is all out of Mercusa. It's the idea that work is bad and restraining and restrictive, and freedom to do whatever you want is where it's at. Now, let me just interject here. We'll come back to this. Let me interject. Do you see already the conflict between this and Genesis 1 and 2? He goes on. The better living, that's the free living, is offset by the all-pervasive control over living. People dwell in apartment concentrations and have private automobiles with which they can no longer escape into a different world. I mean, it's great that you have cars and all, but you've got to pay for them. You've got to keep working. You can't escape into something that's really wonderful. Some place in your mind, some fantasy world where you don't have to work. It's great that you have a car, but you can't get anywhere with it. Like, man, I get all over the place with it. They have huge refrigerators filled with frozen foods as though that's a bad thing. If he were writing today, he said, they have food trucks. And a bunch of men are going to come together on some Friday night and have a great time with a food truck because of those evil corporations and greed of capitalism. They have innumerable choices, innumerable gadgets, which are all of the same sort and keep them occupied and divert their attention from the real issue, which is the awareness that they could both work less and determine their own needs and satisfactions. We're all duped into just working for the man and being enslaved to labor where we could set all that aside and just determine for ourselves what we would be satisfied with. Now I'm sure this room full of Christians who understand the biblical work ethic would see immediately the error of this and never fall prey to any of this thinking, right? <laughs> so let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever said this phrase? Or you heard somebody else say it and you go, yeah, I'm with him. No one ever comes to the end of their life and looks back and says, gee, I wish I spent more time at the office. You heard that? Have you read that in a book? Have you heard a pastor say that? You know, nobody ever comes to the end and says, boy, I wish I'd worked more. Is that a biblical worldview? What's inherent in that statement? Your work is a necessary evil. But real living is other stuff. All right, let me step on your toes a little more. Work? Yeah, I got to provide for my family. It's just a means to an end. 
but the real thing is family time. Now, let me just ask a question. Don't shoot the messenger, I'm just asking a question. Where does the Bible say fathers have family time? What does that look like according to the Bible? You're searching, right? Well, it's got to be in there somewhere because I hear it all the time. I say it all the time. I use it all the time. It's what I elevate to the highest thing. Family is the top priority. Family time, like family meals, family game night, family, family, family. Where is that in the Bible? Now, we've already looked at what family mission is about, but we've sort of elevated this experience as a family as the high pursuit of man. I just got to go to work and do my work so I can get to family time. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with family dinners and family meals and family game nights. We do all that too. We're going to continue to do it. But we're talking about biblical purpose and priority here and getting away from the mindset that work is somehow a necessary evil that we just have to go through so we can provide ourselves with goods and services. No, we are created to work. And the family is to work together to accomplish the subduing and conquering of the world and be productive. But the world says, or at least the Marxist world says, no, 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 that's all bad, that's all evil, get rid of it. And pursue your own individual satisfaction. One more, the ideology of today, he says, lies in that production and consumption reproduce and justify domination. Now, that's the word he uses over and over in this book. Domination is the idea that any ruling class, any authority structure controls your time and effort. So it's all driven by production and consumption, and that's why we have families, because for all of Western civilization, indeed most of human civilization, human uh, history, the family unit has been the centerpiece of production. I mean, it used to be the family farm, right? For, for generations, the family farm, you needed all hands on deck. And the more wives a man could have and the more children a man could have, the more productive he could be. So we've got to get rid of that lie. That means getting rid of the family. And then, of course, all the corporate hierarchies, industrial hierarchies, and governmental hierarchies, if they are in, in, enforcing this, has to go. The repressiveness of the whole lies to a high degree in its efficacy. The reason why we continue to do this as humans is because it's very effective. We actually get stuff. We actually build stuff. We actually become productive and enjoy it. We have those refrigerators full of frozen food and we have all the comforts and, and it's wonderful. That, that's why it's so effective because it actually works. It enhances the scope of material culture and draws ever larger areas of the orbit of industry. Because our standard of living just continues to grow, we're attracted to this evil capitalism thing. The individual pays by sacrificing his time, his consciousness, and his dreams. You going to work is sacrificing you being all that you can be, man. Pursuing your dreams, the sky's the limit. You can do whatever you want to, uh, except you gotta go to, go to work. If we could just eliminate that work thing, you could do whatever. That's your individual sacrifice. The uh, civilization pays by sacrificing its own promises of liberty, justice, and peace. If we can destroy capitalism, then society will achieve utopia and everything will be wonderful. What is the heart of capitalism? The Christian work ethic, the biblical work ethic. It's why they continue to try to destroy Christianity. So what in the world does all that have to do with the sexual perversion agenda, you're asking? If you've been paying attention, you're asking that. Marcuse took Marx's oppressor-oppressed idea filtered it through the pleasure principle, reality principle, but said, no, Freud, you're wrong. The reality principle is a distortion of Western civilization and capitalism. We need to get rid of that 
so that we can all experience free love. Our basic needs have been met. He said civilization has reached maturity. We don't need to go any further. We are so mature in our civilization now, everybody's basic needs can be met. If we would just hand over control to the government and let the government regulate everything, everybody would get everything they need. You could reduce your work hours to maybe a couple hours a day, and then you could spend the rest of your time on free love and play. He was a huge advocate of just of play. Whatever you, whatever you want, whatever that means for you, just play, leisure time, enjoying life to the full, doing whatever you want. And we need to get to unrestrained, guilt-free sensuality. The ultimate freedom, the ultimate play, the ultimate achievement of mankind is to take all of those sexual desires, eliminate all restraint, and get rid of guilt. He followed Sigmund Freud on this, that the biggest inhibitor to our freedom when it comes to pleasure is Christianity. Because Christianity introduced this horrible concept that you've rebelled against a God who is going to punish you for your sin. And this guilt has been passed down and transferred from generation to generation, and we have it, and it's, it's almost indelible in our psyche now. And Marcuse said we have to eradicate that sense of guilt. There is no guilt, there is no shame in any sexual desire. So this is in the 1960s when he's writing this book. What happens? A bunch of college students read it. Professors teach about it. And suddenly people have this summer of free love. And everything is just wonderful. And we're casting off. Not all restraint because society wouldn't accept all licentiousness. But fornication runs rampant. That's just the first step. Then the agenda moves forward. All right, we're going to keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing until adultery really is kind of minimized. You know, everybody does it. You're not getting your needs met at home. Then to go outside, that's perfectly okay. It's justifiable. Easy divorce, quick divorce, no-fault divorce. Opening the door for, you know, you get married for a little while. Then you decide to leave and find someone else. And then the big push Homosexuality, the acceptance of same-sex marriage, transsexuality, and now child sexuality. And there's no restraint. Remember when they were pushing for some of the early sexual licentiousness, people started throwing out the slippery slope argument. And that's not always a great argument. But people were saying, if you open the door to more freedom sexually, Where's it going to stop? And they said, oh, no, 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 no. We'll never go there. Guess what? We are there. And it's going to keep going, and they're going to keep pushing until everything is accepted. And if you disagree, you're the phobe. You're the bigot. You need to be shut down. The point is, it's not merely sexual deviance. It's an agenda from a worldview that is seeking to overthrow Christian ethics, and morality, and biblical teaching. So what do we do? Well, as we've been saying through this whole thing, we have at least one tool in our hand for the, from the cultural perspective, and that's coming up November 3rd, vote. And not just November 3rd, but there are lots of elections after that. Like, you know, every couple of years, and then there are lots of local, local elections. From now on... I hope you will give thought to who you vote for like never before at all levels. Not just the presidency, not just United States Congress, but local levels as well. We need to get to know who, who, what the worldview is of people who are running and let's not vote for people who are wanting to legalize debauchery. It should matter to us. We have a voice in this. Secondly, Let's remember how God designed our households to be. Now, some of you are not married in this room. Great, you're still a household of one. 
and you don't have the patriarchal setup, but you're a household that is called by God to be fruitful. Not in the, I shouldn't say fruitful, be productive. Don't be fruitful until you get a spouse. You are to be productive to rule and subdue this earth, to work hard. This is inherent in our humanity. Work is not evil. Work was given to Adam before the fall. It was given to Eve before the fall. Don't be like the people who say, ah, I'm just working for the weekend or I wish I hadn't spent so much time in the office. Now, maybe some of you need to stop going to the office as much. That's fine. And, and there's more than just your paying job too. Be productive in this, in this world. And as fathers, bring together a household that is doing something. In my family, think about it. I had most of my family up here today. Now, this is my job. Let me, let me step aside from ministry in that sense. This is my job, right? I, part of my product, if you will, is things that go on in this church. Well, my family's part of that. They're an active part of it. In, in the music ministry, in the AV ministry, my, my daughter was teaching this morning in Sunday school. That helps me in my job. Now, yours is going to look different, and that, I'm not saying the paradigm for everybody. I'm just saying that's intentional in my household that my family is helping me be productive because that's what I'm created to do by God, and so are you. And don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of productivity. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but productivity is not evil. It's our created mandate. Number three, don't be afraid. Don't believe the lies. We're not terrified of child sexuality. We're saying that stuff is evil. God calls it evil. It's not my standard. I don't get to decide what's evil. He calls it evil, and I'm declaring to you it's evil. Stand firm. Don't be afraid. Don't believe the lies of those who charge you with fear. Say, no, we're on the right side of this. They're on the wrong side. God and you are a majority. And you're going to win the debate in the end. We have to do our part to stand firm on these things and not let the lies take further hold. It's a big task. We've given up a lot of ground. The toothpaste is out of the tube, and it's really hard to put it back in. But we've got to do our part to stem the tide as much as we can. I'm going to ask Brother Bob Miller to come and pray for us to this end that we will stand firm. Do you want to ask some from the floor? Do we have some questions up here? Oh, we do. Look at that. All right. And these will be long questions because they have unlimited cat uh oh okay soviet russia showed government control didn't work why is marxism still relevant <laughs> that is a leading question which i like uh yeah everywhere socialism has been implemented it has been a complete disaster uh, because the idea that man is basically good and that the government will merely facilitate uh production Marxism wants to give the means of production to the control of the government, and since those people who do that will be wonderful and, and gracious to everyone in kind, then of course it's going to work. No, that never happens. What you get is Joseph Stalin, and you get Pol Pot, and you get Mao Zedong, and on and on and on. Um, it's only relevant because, uh, as we talked about a few weeks ago, they have shifted gears some from purely a worker a business owner dichotomy to trying to cause revolution by dividing everybody up into classes. That's why we see so much racism. Uh, you realize Black Lives Matter is the greatest cause of racism in our, in our country today. And they are doing that on purpose because they're trying to bring the revolution. You're seeing more and more of the signs of BLM marches is not just about justice. Now it's about revolution. It's about destroying the system. So it's cultural Marxism, not, not traditional historic Marxism. And they've sort of given up the uh, fight against capitalism head on. They're trying to subvert it now by destroying the culture with the idea that eventually they can undermine capitalism. But it's happening even in a, uh, a tacit way. 
Think about how much control the government pursues every election period. They want to make more and more decisions. We're going to talk more about that in a future sermon. They want more and more control of your lives. That's in, implicit Marxism. So it's still relevant because there are Marxists, cultural Marxists, still on a mission to undermine Western civilization and Christianity. And we, as Americans, we as Christians, have been naive and ignorant of this. We thought when the Berlin Wall went down, remember that? Some of you don't, like, what's the Berlin Wall? When we saw that thing fall, we won. Marxism is done. Wrong. They just shifted strategy, and they took over our government, took over our academic institutions. Remember the four robes we talked about? It's in the pastorate. There are churches all over America today who are adopting critical theory and some of the things we've been talking about this, through this series. So it's still very, very relevant because they haven't given up with the mission to destroy Western civilization and Christianity. That's it? All right, questions from the floor? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the comment is about the government overreach with the, the COVID pandemic. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is the first pandemic in the history of mankind where healthy people were quarantined. Uh, there's good reason to suspect there's something going on from our government uh, pursuit there, yeah. All right, other questions? Yes. Yeah, good question. So, uh, and help make sure I summarize this. I'm not functioning on all cylinders. Is that the way I said? Um, there's no doubt we, because of tools and technology, we can provide the basic needs of of people with far fewer farmers. For instance, there's, there are there are fewer farmers in in the world than ever before, and we're producing more food, for instance. So, what should we apply ourselves productively to? Uh, I don't know if I want to actually answer that too narrowly, it, the, it's, it's not, uh, what I was trying to argue from Genesis 1 and 2, it's not only about providing for our needs. So the flute and the lyre, right? That's not about need. Now, as a musician, I would say it's a need, but most of you would not say music is a need. And yet it's right there in Genesis chapter 4 as an outworking of this command to rule and subdue the earth. So maybe we should separate that work is only to provide food or productivity is only to provide for our basic needs and realize the world is out there to explore. If we, I mean, we put a man on the moon for crying out loud, right? We, we, we've achieved all kinds of things. I guess that's not ruling the earth. That's going beyond the earth. But... Uh, it doesn't seem like we need to restrict it to just the basic needs. Pursue creating more and more and finding new things going on in this world. You look at all the scientific and technological advances that uh, may or may not attribute, uh, satisfy our basic needs, but they're just, they're, they're conquering the world. I, I'm not a chemist. I don't understand physics very well. I don't understand all the intricacies of how we've created energy. For instance, you know, electricity, oil, natural gas, nuclear generation four, as I understand it, is the next big thing that's going to revolutionize everything about energy, and yet we're all scared of nuclear because all we think of is Chernobyl and glowing at night and that kind of thing. Uh, but somebody, fusion, I don't even know how that works, I don't know how to say the word, but this creating massive amounts of energy in a, in a relatively small location that's tremendous. Uh, that's happening because people are finding out new things about this world and saying, how do I rule and conquer that and, and develop that? So I would say, I don't know if I would put limits on it. Just go. 
Other questions? Is complementarianism a cultural perversion of biblical patriarchy, a refined explanation of patriarchy, or something else? Um, so, do you all know what complementarianism is? It's, okay. Uh, as feminism came on the scene and began to make inroads into the church, uh, a few scholars came together and created what they call the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, uh, wrote a big thick book on that with lots of different essays by different people and said the Christian view, uh, they, they didn't want to use the word patriarchy because that sounds too harsh. And uh, so they created this term called complementarianism, which basically says uh, men and women have different roles, but they are complementary roles. Notice uh, it's... Uh, it should be C-O-M-P-L-E. That spelling is, I compliment you. Oh, you look very nice today. That's not what marriage is. I mean, that's good for marriage. You should say that to each other. But it's complete, complementing. Uh, we're two sides of the picture that we need both to complete. Um, and I'm not intending to pick on whoever spelled that wrong. I'm, uh, it, it does matter in, in what complementary means. Um, I've never used the word, I don't like the word complementarianism because I do think it's a capitulation to feminism. I think it was uh, generated out of fear of saying the man is the head of his home. It's very much more palatable among feminist-influenced feminist Christians to say, you know, we really are just complementary. I'm not uh, superior to my wife. Well, I'm not superior to her as far as dignity and worth and all that. Right, Krista? Right. Wow, that was quick. <laughs> but I am her authority, biblically speaking. And that is what, did you say amen? All right, good girl. Um, it, it, it is the way that, that God designed it. So I think we should stick to the biblical concept and patriarchal, patriarchy is a biblical concept. Now some people you know, mean the same thing by the terms, but the terms themselves are not interchangeable. So I would recommend as Christians, get away from the term complementarian and stick to the word that we find in the Bible, like headship, headship and submission, they're in the Bible. And we shouldn't be ashamed of them or afraid of them. It's not a bad thing. It's only bad if it's abused, like any authoritative situation. Uh, so use those terms and, and live in those terms. Um, and the, the other thing I don't like about the word complementarian, if I were single and I heard a man say, my wife completes me, what does that mean if I'm single? I'm incomplete. That's a horrible thing to say. No, Krista does not complete me. I know it makes good love songs, but she doesn't complete me. I'm entirely complete and whole without her. But I'm much more productive with her. And that's the biblical mission for, for families. It's a good question. Thanks for asking. Any more? No? Anything else from the floor? All right, we'll call it a day. Thanks.